Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We've been going through, we found ourselves going through the book of John on Wednesday nights. We didn't start off to do a series, or I didn't. I, uh, we started looking at the feeding of the 5,000, and then we went back and looked at the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, at least uh, referred to it. Uh, talked about him walking on the water and his confrontation with the people who followed him over there to get more bread and how he offered himself up as the bread of life, how uh, he had more than one uh, conflict or confrontation with the Jewish authorities. And uh, when he mentioned eating his flesh and drinking his blood, then he lost many of his disciples. And uh, last week we looked at Jesus and his claim during the Feast of Tabernacles that the Father never leaves him because he always does what pleases the Father. And we talked about how we can have that same confidence even though we know that uh, in our flesh we don't always please the Father. The whole point of our salvation is that we are in Christ and he always pleases the Father. So we can have the same confidence that the Father never leaves us. And we wrapped up chapter 8 with, with this amazing, indeed to the Jews, it was an incredible statement where he said, before Abraham was, I am. This was sort of a, a climax to a, to a discussion he was having with the, the Pharisees who were claiming their position as inheritors of the kingdom of God or the... Uh, the blessing of Abraham because they were sons of Abraham. They traced their lineage back to Abraham. They were sons of Abraham. They were disciples of Moses. And he said, look, if you really were sons of Abraham, you'd believe in me just like Abraham believed in me. Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. And Moses wrote about me. And they looked at him and they're like, well, you're not even 50 years old and you're saying you've seen Abraham? And he said, I'm not even kidding. Before Abraham was, I am. And that's when they picked up rocks to stone him because they knew exactly what he was claiming to be. In, uh, we are in John. Let me find chapter 8. And in verse 59, they took up, And then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. And then we come to chapter 9, which is one of my favorite episodes in the New Testament, the healing of the man born blind. I preached this before, so I kind of don't want to spend all night on it, but I bet I do because I just can't skip it. Uh, but let me read the first few verses, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. 
I'm not going to spend too much time on this. I think the last time I preached this, this is what we looked at, and there's too many other things I want to talk about, but I love Jesus' response when the disciples asked. I mean, there, there was their assumption. They're revealing some presuppositions here that every sickness, every disease, everything that's wrong with us can be traced back to a sin. And they clearly believed in what we would refer to as generational curses, meaning this guy's blind, and he's blind obviously because of sin, uh, and they figure Jesus knows everything. Hey, was it his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? And when Jesus says, neither he, sinned, neither, uh, he has not sinned, his parents haven't sinned, we know he's not pronouncing them uh, perfectly sinless because that contradicts everything Scripture tells us about the nature of man, which says that we're all sinners, right? Uh, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God be made manifest in him. His whole, I would translate, the Scott Mills translation says, don't worry about why he's blind. I'm here, and I'm going to fix it. it is, we are not going to wrestle with this. We don't need to go into the causes. It doesn't matter. Your fault, your father's fault, the devil's fault. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And while he's saying this stuff, he, it's not like he enters into this discussion and then looks at the guy. While he's talking, he's spitting on the ground. He's making this clay. And as he talks, he, he smears this clay in the man's eyes and says, go and wash. And the guy does, and he comes back seeing. Beautiful, beautiful miracle. I also like to point out, and I think it has been a while since I shared this, but it's significant to me that the man was born blind. Because I spoke years ago uh, to a woman who works with the blind. She's, she's a teacher of the blind, and she has studied the causes of blindness uh, pretty extensively. She's not a doctor, but she's, she's just done a lot of uh, research in this area. And, and you know this. We know. Uh, we usually talk about this in reference to teenagers, how the brain continues to develop. Your brain isn't fully developed until you're like uh, oh, 22, 23, even 24. And unfortunately, the last part to be complete is this somewhere in the frontal lobe that affects your risk assessment and decision-making, which is why kids do stupid things. And they, they get hurt stupid ways, and they die stupid ways, and they need, these, they need guidance for a long time. But uh, the brain clearly isn't fully developed. If, it, if we know it's not fully developed until we're in our 20s, we know it's certainly not fully developed when we're born. And babies, when they open their eyes, and light strikes their eyes for the first time, strikes the back of their eyes, the retina, what this does is it triggers a process by which neural pathways are created from the back of the eye through the brain to the visual cortex in the back of the brain. It's not like they just open their eyes and see, and it's like, well, they're babies, they don't know what they're seeing. All these things are, are, are working. They are physical, uh, physiological processes where these pathways are being created the moment light strikes the back of the retina. The fact that this, this man was born blind means that when Jesus healed him, he didn't just heal his eyes. He didn't just heal him of a disease. He did a creative miracle. And this is encouraging to me because if what you are needing in your life is something more than just, uh, I'd say just, just healing from a disease because a disease can be everything from a cough to cancer, and we know God heals, Right? We know God has healed. We've heard some fantastic testimonies here just in the last few weeks. Amazing things God, is, God continues to do in our midst today. 
But if what you need is, is not just to be better, but to be made whole, something's missing, something's genuinely broken, God heals. If what you need to be healthy and whole is a creative miracle, that's what you get. That's what God promises, and this is what he did to this man. And he doesn't go into that. We, we know now from science this has to be what happened. If he was born blind, it wasn't just a matter of his eyes being stuck shut or his eyes not working. There were things in his brain that needed to be created at that moment for him to come back from the pool of Siloam with vision. Then uh, there's an argument when he came back, and everybody's accustomed to seeing this guy uh, begging, blind, and now they can see that he sees, and they're like, this can't be the same guy. Now nah, it's just somebody who looks like him. He says, no, I'm he. I am he. I am the one that was blind. And they said, well, how do you do it? He put clay on my eyes and told me to go to Siloam and wash, and I did, and now I can see. And they said, where is he? I don't know, because he, I was still blind when he walked off. I was led to the pool of Siloam, and when I came back, whoever told me to wash was gone. So they take him to the Pharisees. They go to the Jewish authorities to see what they think, and look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, Now, it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And here we go again. How many times has this happened already? This whole, a lot of this whole argument started when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda and told him, it wasn't just that he healed him. Do you remember what he said? Take up your pallet and walk. Go home. Take your bed with you. And the Pharisees nail this guy for working on the Sabbath. What was he doing? He was carrying his bed on the Sabbath when every good Jew knows you do no work. And why are you carrying your bed on the Sabbath? Because the man who healed me and made me walk after 38 years of lying by this pool, the same one who told me to rise up and walk, told me to carry my bed. There's no way I'm going to say no to this guy. Who told you to do that? Who is he? So then they start grilling Jesus about that of all things. And this is what they continue to get hung up on. You do these miracles on the Sabbath. Yeah, it sure looks like the things you're doing, they're very comparable to the things we see, the miraculous works of Elijah. Elisha, these Old Testament powerful prophets. But we know you're not real because no true prophet of God would do these things on the Sabbath. Gotcha. Once again, they're dragging in these preconceptions. And you know, uh, John says at the end of his gospel that he's only recording a fraction of the mighty works that Jesus did. You remember that, right? If we, if we tried to write down everything Jesus did, all the books in the world wouldn't contain it. Uh, and, so, and, and yet, the Bible also records seven specific Sabbath miracles. And so I strongly suspect that there were way, just as we know there were many more miracles than the Bible records, there were certainly many more Sabbath miracles than the Bible records. And I shared with you last week, sometimes I, I'm very thankful that I didn't live back then because I wonder how great the danger would be of, of my falling in with the Pharisees uh, with a sort of a legalistic outlook. It's like, yeah, you know what? Uh, are you doing this just to stick your finger in our eye? You know it's the Sabbath. You know this is going to bother us. Why? Even if you can, why do it on the Sabbath? Why put a roadblock before the people, the devout Jews, even the Pharisees? 
And the fact is, Jesus was showing them who was who. He was not just a teacher of the word. He was the living word of God. The Lord of the Sabbath is the one who said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Your, start, your whole presupposition, everything you're basing your argument, not only is your argument wrong, everything you're basing your argument is wrong. God gave the Sabbath to you. And when it says, uh, you know, don't do any work on the Sabbath, Jesus, uh, Jesus asked, asked them earlier, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Or, is it, or should we do evil on the Sabbath? He confronts them with, hey, if, if, uh, if one of your animals fell into a pit, are you going to wait until Monday or S- Sunday to fish it out? Or are you going to get him out on the Sabbath? You're going to get him out because it's the right thing to do. When it says do no work, on that day you'll do no work, it's talking about working for your sustenance, working to earn. They weren't to gather manna on the Sabbath, so God gave them extra the day before. So they could gather more and not work and simply enjoy the Sabbath. Uh, Six days shall a man work. And it's talking about it. But the Jews, in typical fashion, the Jewish authorities, had complicated things over the years to where they actually spelled out, here's how many steps you can take on the Sabbath before it's defined as work. You can only travel so far. You, you go a step beyond that, and now you're working. Uh, yeah, you can eat on the Sabbath, but if you do so much as rub your hands together to, to scrape the chaff off of some grain, that's work. The grain already has to be clean for you to eat it. Remember, because that's what they were doing, Jesus and his disciples walking through the field. They pick some grain, they're rubbing it between their hands. Ah, you're working on the Sabbath. It's mind-boggling how narrow they could be and picky they can be about the smallest stuff. It was never supposed to be. It was never supposed to be about expend no energy whatsoever. Uh, but Jesus is doing these things on the Sabbath to show that even though God rested from creating on the seventh day, God does not take a day off when it comes to caring for his children. This is exactly why Jesus healed on the Sabbath again and again. Jesus is the express image of the Father. The overriding mission of Jesus Christ leading up to his sacrificial death, his burial, and his resurrection was to live and minister in such a way that he showed us exactly what the Father is like. He wants us to know what God is like and says, if you want to see the Father, look at me. And he wants us to understand, yes, he's given us a day of rest, and yes, God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he was done creating. But we don't, if, we, if, we, if Jesus is going to take the legalist's version of no work on the Sabbath, that means we're kind of in a mess if we have a desperate need from God on the Sabbath. We've got to wait until the next day because not even God works on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, yes, he does. He works on your behalf on the Sabbath. If you need a healing on the Sabbath, you need a miracle on the Sabbath, you need a need met on the Sabbath, God still hears your prayers and still works in your life. All right? Now, the Pharisees 
grill this guy. They start again about the, are you really the one who was born blind? Yes, yes, I really am. They drag in his parents. And they say, is this your son? Was he born blind? And how can he see now? And they're like, "Uh, we can verify that this is our son, and we can verify that he was born blind. As to how he sees now, you're going to have to ask him. He's old enough to answer for himself. This was a very carefully phrased answer because the Pharisees had already decided that anybody who openly confessed Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, would be put out of the synagogue. And that's being cut off from the core of their community. It's not like today, oh, we got kicked out of a church? I'll go down the street and join a different church. No, you are disassociated from the religious center of this community when you're put out of the synagogue. And they were afraid. They had already heard the story by then. This was all happening very fast. They probably believed their son. Well, how does he see? Well, this guy Jesus healed him. But they're like, we're not going to answer that. We weren't there. He's of age. We no longer have to answer for him. He's a grown man. So ask him. Well, they already had asked him. They didn't like his answer. So then we get to what may be my favorite part in this story. In chapter 9, verse 24. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. And he's getting bold. Then he gets really bold. In verse 26, And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. The man answered and said, (laughs) we do not know where he's from. Do you remember earlier on their whole complaint was they did know where he was from? Remember that? The whole reason they wouldn't accept him as the Messiah is, hey, nobody's supposed to know where the Messiah is from. Well, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard heard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Wow, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty good theology, pretty bold in the face of these, these Pharisees. And they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and you are teaching us? And they cast him out. Wow. But now this, in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. As I've mentioned, this is one of my all-time favorite miracles, one of my favorite passages of the New Testament. And when I read this part today, something just like a flashbulb went off. When he said, you have seen him. The guy had only been seeing for a little bit. (laughs) And I want to share this poem with you. I know what big fans of poetry you are. 
So I try to read one every now and then. And this is a short one and a simple one. It's not like Francis Thompson. Some people long impatiently to gaze on certain things like comets, rainbows, or the sea, or generals, or kings. They never stop to wonder how the eyes inform the mind, and all this information's lost to me, a man born blind. At least it was till yesterday, when Jesus came to me. He put clay on my eyes, I washed, and since then I can see. I see now things of which I'd heard and ever longed to view, and even though you find it odd, I swear this much is true. Though glorious the setting sun and brilliant stars of night, more glorious than these sights by far is he who gave me sight. More glorious than these sights by far is he who gave me sight. To have our blind eyes opened, to gaze upon the one who opens our eyes. There's something beautiful about that that I only just noticed it's not where is he so that I can get more from him it's where is he that I may believe in him in uh, verse 39 Jesus said and verse 38 and then he said Lord I believe and he worshipped him and Jesus said for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. And this is a little bit of a tricky passage. What he's basically saying is when he's talking about judgment, he's not talking about coming to condemn the world. He's not even talking about coming as the judge of all the earth. He's talking about in this sense, you will be judged and your fate will be determined by what you, by your humility. If you acknowledge your need and you acknowledge my ability to meet that need, you're going to be healed. You're going to be whole. You're going to see. If you insist that you have no need, that your vision is just fine, then you really are going to be permanently cut off from the wholeness that I want you to have. It, it's really, it's reminiscent of uh, in Revelation. Nancy, don't get excited. I'm not preaching about the last day. Uh, but in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 says and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things says the amen the faithful and true witness the beginning of the creation of God I know your works that you are neither hot sorry neither cold nor hot I could wish you were cold or hot am I in the right one yes Uh, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot I will vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness may, may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with salve that you may see. This is it. Their whole problem 
according to Jesus in this passage, is you are never going to receive what God sent me here to give you because you refuse to acknowledge that you need anything. If you're going to start from the premise that you already have it all and know it all, your pride is going to cost you your very salvation, your very sight, spiritually speaking. And where are we with this? If you, if you are a believer, a born-again child of God, if you're saved, if you are a Christian, it is only because you, at some point in your life, recognized that you needed something from God that you could never get on your own, that you could never earn, that you needed to be something you could never make yourself. It is so hard, and this is why I think typically it can be a little more difficult the older we get uh, to make that concession. You know, statistically speaking, I, and I can't remember, I used to have this stuff uh, it, it, it was written down, I'd get lists of these statistics, and I don't know how much this has changed in the last decade or so, but it used to be the vast majority of people who ever came to Christ came to Christ before the age of 18. Uh, and part of this is just, just imagine if, if you're 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, and somebody's presenting the gospel to you, and deep down inside, you're thinking, I've never done that. Do you know how scary it is to think you've been living that close to the edge for that long? It's, it's a little bit perverse, but you could say, and what we should say is, thank God I'm hearing it now. Somebody's shared the truth with me. I'm going to trust in Christ. Instead, it's like, oh my gosh, what if I had died five years ago? I'd, be, I'd, I'd die in my sins. I'd rather just not believe it. would rather say, I'm okay. I really don't need that. I've had conversations with, uh, I've had a conversation with somebody very, very recently. Uh, and, and this is not an old, old person, but it's somebody in their 70s who has wept in my presence, who has admitted to me that they have never made that decision and twice has refused my specific offer to pray with him for salvation. I do not know what's holding him back. But there's something about clinging to this idea that I have need of nothing. We cannot simply take Christ's teaching and add them to what we think is a good life. We have to recognize, no matter how good our outward actions are, that at our core, we are wretched, naked, and blind. But, stand up with me, but, once, this is a crucial distinction, people, so listen, once you have made that decision, which I know is most of you in this room, once you have made that decision, once you have humbled yourself in the presence of God Almighty at the foot of the cross of Christ and said, Lord, I am a wretch, I have nothing, I am nothing without you, except for your shed blood, except for the forgiveness you offer me, I am a wretch. But once you have confessed that and received that free gift of salvation, remember, it's not just forgiveness, it's what? It's a new creation. This is what Paul said at the end of Galatians there, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but a new creation. 
All things are become new if any man be in Christ. He is a new creature. And that's us. So what I'm saying is once you are a child of God, once you are in Christ, you need to stop thinking about yourself as miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked and start saying, I once was blind, but now I see. You say, how has how God changed you, you know? And we can answer this maybe a little bit better as life goes on, but we need to be humble enough to say with that man, I can't tell you how he did it. I don't know. There's a lot I can't tell you about Jesus, but I can tell you this. This morning, I was still blind like I was from the day of my birth, and now I can see. He's opened my eyes. I once was lost, now I'm found. What a wonderful thing to be able to say, and then to say, and this is, this is it. This is his first day seeing. And, and this is something I can't even begin to imagine. What's your frame of reference? Can a blind person picture something? I understand if you saw for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years and then went blind, you can remember what things looked like. But if you were born blind, what does the word see even mean to you? When you feel something, is there such a thing as visualizing something if you've never had vision? What kind of adjustment is it when your whole world is suddenly, suddenly sight is yours for the first time? And people have told you things. I'm going to describe the sun. I'm going to describe, describe the stars. And you see it. You have the opportunity to take in the landscape, what people look like. And when he asked Jesus, who is the son of God? I love how Jesus said, you have seen him. You have seen, what a loaded phrase that is. You've seen all this? You've seen Jesus. And whatever else God has given us, whatever he's blessed us with, let us never lose sight of the fact that the number one thing he has given us, the number one blessing we have, is him himself. So, quick question. Have you made that decision? Have you acknowledged your wretchedness ever? Your need for spiritual sight? If you haven't, today's your day. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a prayer to close this message out. We're going to sing a song to close the service out. If you need to give your heart to Jesus Christ, you need to trust in him for salvation, eternal life. Don't wait another day. Don't be like this guy I've been talking to who just keeps saying, not right now, not right now. Why would you wait another day? And if you have, and maybe you came in here thinking, yeah, yeah I know I prayed that prayer, but I still kind of feel like a wretch. And I know why I feel like a wretch. I haven't been given attention to the things of God in my life. Maybe you need to just recommit, reconnect. You can come up here and do that. You can do that in your seat. But do it if you need to. Maybe you're saying, I'm a believer, and I've tried to stay close. I just not, I'm not walking in that kind of boldness and power. I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit like the disciples were. You were meant to. We were all meant to. We weren't meant to be... According to, to Jesus, it was impossible, is impossible for us to be the witness he's called us to be without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you'd like to be saved, you'd like to reconnect, recommit, or like to be baptized in the Holy Ghost, come up here as soon as I'm done praying, as soon as they start singing, all right? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the healing power of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us who the Father is, what he does, what he is like, what's important to him. Thank you that... Lord, that you don't take a day off from caring for us. 
And we thank you. Those of us who call you by the name of Jesus who has saved us, thank you for giving us sight, for giving us life, for revealing yourself to us. And I pray, Lord, I, and I believe I'm praying on behalf of every believer in this room, if there's anybody in here, Father, who does not know you as Father, has never received the finished work of Jesus Christ as payment for their own sin and sinfulness, that you would move on them, touch them, speak to them tonight, grant them the humility, the wisdom, and the boldness to come now and receive that gift of eternal life. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and all the believers said, Amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.